Chapter 6, Part 2 of 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water by Ethel Gwendolyn Vincent. San Francisco in the Yosemite Valley, Part 2. But the grandeur and sublimity of the valley lie above us in those marvelous configurations, those fanciful phantoms and wayward fancies placed there by nature. For centuries and centuries since the foundation of the world, they have stood there, alone in their solemn glory, unseen by civilized eye, unknown until some thirty years ago. Facing us there is El Capitan, called by the Indians Totokohula, or Great Chief of the Valley, the most matchless piece of masonry in the world. The twin brothers are there, the three graces, the sentinel rock, the cathedral with its graceful spires, the bridal veil, the dome, and the half-dome. Hundreds have gazed enraptured upon these natural wonders, and return again and yet again to drink their fill of nature's handiwork, and looking from nature up to nature's God, thank him that he has traced with almighty hand so many pictures of wondrous and unspeakable grandeur and beauty. In the course of years, countless beholders will feel their souls expand to the dimensions of their almighty architect as they gaze upon this incomparable valley. We drove down over the road invisible from the valley and stopped just on the bridge under which flows the stream from the bridal veil. The Indians gave it the name of Pohono, or spirit of the evil wind. You can almost see the single drops falling against the side of the dark rock as the spray-like foam, far more beautiful than the Staubach in Switzerland, comes over the left side of the cathedral rock. It falls in an unbroken sheet, 630 feet, then dashing from the debris of rocks some 200 feet more, flows in a succession of tiny cataracts. The fancifully pretty name came from the body of water, which, when falling lightly over the cliff, is swayed to and fro by the pressure of the wind striking the long column, often giving it the appearance of a fluttering veil. I thought it's the most beautiful object in the valley. There are several small inns, but we stopped at Barnard's, which lies immediately under the falls which gives their name to the valley. A hurried consultation with the landlord resulted in the decision to go up to Glacier Point, which has the most extensive and complete view of all the different points of interest in the valley. The ascent was to take us three hours, when it would be possible for us to drive afterwards to Mirror Lake in time to see the sunset. We started immediately on a pony and two mules, Mr. Lee being of the party, up the steep trail, preceded by the guide, who turned out to be surly, useless, and disobliging. The sun glared fiercely in our eyes, blurring out the view of the valley below. I tried with ill success the shelter of a sun umbrella, the pony shying violently and turning round on the narrow path to look me in the face. 
we became impatient with the slow progress and weary of urging on the animals. And at last, by dint of persistent questioning, I found out from the guide that Glacier Point was six miles from the valley, or about six hours' expedition there and back. Mirror Lake disappeared entirely from our program, and we even began to think of contenting ourselves with Union Point. We reached there at 4.30, having taken two hours for the four miles, and the guide assured us we must allow the same time for returning. After some discussion, the matter was finally settled for us by looking at the soft haze about the sun and seeing that the brightness of the afternoon was passing away. We decided to give up Glacier Point and be contented with a less extensive, though I can hardly believe, less beautiful view. At Union Point, we were 2,200 feet up, and on the platform immediately facing us stood the beautiful Agassiz Column, a spiral fragment of rock raised up on end. There was a great solemnity and grandeur in the silence and stillness of the valley below. We were above the hum and stir of life, away from mankind, from the petty aims and ambitions of the world beneath us, left alone with the grand mountains. The evening shadows, with their soft blue lights, fell on the surrounding points even as we looked, and the valley itself lay in shadow below. Immediately above, and inclining down towards us, were the three brothers, their Indian names signifying mountains playing leapfrog, giving the truest description of their triple zigzag peaks. We knew that on the other side of the rock, only 200 feet lower down, there was a similar formation, the Three Graces, or the sweet Wawalina of the Mona dialect. We saw the sentinel or watchtower of the Indians, a mass of perpendicular granite tapering into a peak that seemingly points its summit into the sky, and which forever stands watching, keeping guard over the valley. Again, on the same side, the beautiful cathedral spires were just to be seen, tapering to the height of 500 feet above the massive roof of the cathedral rock, which is itself a piece of unified granite of 2,660 feet in height. These spires are the most graceful specimens of natural masonry and architecture in the valley, and at times when the wind soughs and moans amongst the crevices, and round about the spires, they say you can hear the deep tones as of some minor organ wailing, the miserere of lost souls. Turning away from this side and looking on the other, in the far distance we saw the dome, and a very perfectly rounded dome it is. It seems to be made up of prodigious concentric plates of granite on one side, suggesting the formation of what are called the royal arches, but towering so far above it that it is completely dwarfed by comparison, is the half-dome, the goddess of the valley, the most remarkable formation amongst the many that are in this valley of marvels. It is a symmetrical dome of bare rock, scarred and worn with the storms that gather and play about its mighty head. Storm-written hieroglyphics, they have rightly been called, rising 4,737 feet above the valley. 
the valley itself being 4,000 feet above the level of the sea. But instead of sloping away on both sides, this dome on the left is cut completely away and descends in an absolutely vertical line of 1,800 feet or more, thus producing a perfect half dome. Some great convulsion of nature seems to have split it directly in two, and the western half has disappeared. No one knows where. The valley is here narrowed to its smallest limit, and this tends to add to the stupendous majesty of this imperfect dome. To give some idea of its vast height, it is not once, nor twice, nor thrice, but fifteen times the height of St. Peter's at Rome. All rock, nothing but rock. And God's hand built it, not in masses of slow-mounting masonry, gaining adventurously and toilsomely, foot by foot, and pushing its scaffolding ever higher to keep command of the work, and straining its engineery to swing aloft the chiseled and ponderous blocks to their place. But with one lift, without break, of course, or any gradation of rising completeness, the supreme builder set the dome mountain in its place, foundation wall and top stone, one sublime integral whole, unprofaned by craftsman's tools, untrod by foot of man. Beneath the half-dome, but hidden from us, lies the mirror lake, where, on a surface absolutely motionless, at sunset and at sunrise, I reflected all the magnificent surroundings in perfection. Clouds rest as the culminating mountain top in this part of the valley. And now, after we have been looking at these far-off points, our eyes fall down to those nearer home, and we look opposite at Al Capitan. We follow upwards the lines that seem interminable in their length, from the base to the brow of this wall of rock, this mass of immensity. El Capitan imposes on us by its stupendous bulk, which seems as if hewn from the mountains on purpose to stand as the type of eternal massiveness. Wipe out the beautiful Merced with its snow-fed streams. Let the fierce summer heat dry up the waterfalls, blast as with the curse the whole valley. El Capitan would still smite you with his austere silence. The spire of Strasbourg Cathedral the masterpiece of Gothic architecture, is 468 feet high, and still the compound height of seven such cathedrals would not equal the height of this granite mass. Over a recess in a dim corner, during the earlier months of the year, poured the ribbon falls, or virgin's tears, the long and slender of the Indians, though in summer it dwindles down into what we saw it, a single ribbon string. Much the same may be said of the Yosemite Falls, from which the valley takes its name, signifying in Indian large grizzly bear, which are very beautiful from the months of March till July, when they likewise dwindle into insignificance. These may also be said to be divided into three distinct falls, with a perpendicular descent of 1,500 feet, a six hundred feet of cataracts over a shelving rock, and a final fall of four hundred feet, ending in spray and foam. 
The great advantage of the further ascent to Glacier Point is that you have the more complete view of the valley which includes the Vernal and Nevada Falls, two very beautiful falls of 400 and 600 feet each, some way up the Canyon of the Merced, the Sentinel Dome, which is a mile and a half above the point, the Washington Column, or Watching Eye, and a very far-reaching view over the further side of the valley, of the little Yosemite, and the higher peaks of the Sierra Nevada. This view from Union Point proved our only hope of carrying away with us some general idea of the wonder formations of the valley in the short space of time we could allow. And, after trying, with some success, I since think, to print them indelibly in our mind's eye, we turned our thoughts towards the descent. My pony had come down on his knees at a very early period of the expedition, and I greatly mistrusted his powers of holding up down the steep stony trail, not counting the discomfort of feeling the legs of the animal sliding away in front and subsiding behind, while simultaneously being pitched forward at a very inclined angle. I declined to ride down the first and steepest part of the trail, and eventually it ended in my running down the four miles and resting at the bottom for half an hour for the others to come up. We returned to Barnard's decidedly crestfallen and with very different feelings to those of pleasurable excitement with which we had started out earlier in the afternoon. We went to bed quite worn out after such a long day, but there was to be no sleep for us that night. Mosquito and the hardest beds I ever slept on were small drawbacks when compared to the weekly ball that was going on immediately underneath us. Every sound was heard through the thin partitions, and we could only lie and listen to the master of the ceremonies with his figure number one and cross over, turn, face partner, ladies' chain, sides, etc., the scraping of the fiddle and the shuffling of the feet. Weary and dispirited, we left the valley the next morning at 6 a.m., taking our farewell view from the top of the mountain, which we had been winding up the side of for three hours. We had in the coach with us Mrs. Macaulay, who kept the inn at Glacier Point, and one of the first inhabitants of the valley. She told us that there was general complaint about the meager compensation that government had given to the inhabitants since they had taken possession. The early settlers had expended much toil on the formation of the first and most dangerous trails to the principal points, charging some small fee. It was in 1864 that Congress granted the valley to the state of California as the cleft of gorge in the granite peak of the Sierra Nevada under the express condition that it was to be kept for the benefit of the people, for their use, resort, and recreation, and especially to hold them inalienable for all time. And so it always is in America. Parks, gardens, all places are kept and maintained for the people. Congress has just taken possession of the comparatively newly discovered Yellowstone Park for the nation, preparatory to developing its wonders and making it accessible for the people. A guardian and commissioners were appointed for the valley, 
who have since done wonders in making the points of interest more approachable by new roads, bridges, and trails. We had another of those magnificent forest drives, looking over the valleys and the mountain peaks of the Sierra Nevada, from the opposite side to that on which we had entered the valley. But the coach was on a smaller build than the others we had been in. It was more than unusually laden with passengers, and the heat was very great. We arrived cramped and somewhat cross at Mrs. Crocker's, a Nottinghamshire woman, where we found a charming luncheon provided in a cool, neat cottage. In the afternoon, we drove through the trunk of one of the monster trees, the dead giant, where there was room for the six horses and coach to pass at a full trot, describing a slight curve of the road in passing through the aperture but it required the fine, skillful driving that we had to do it. Then we pictured to ourselves those marvelous groves of big trees near the Yosemite, the Calaveras and the Mariposa and South Groves, wonders which we had missed altogether, without which no description of the valley is complete. I therefore give a rough outline gathered from those who have seen them. The discovery of this new tree of sequoia occasioned much excitement. At first, it was supposed to be of the species of redwood or wellingtonia, but eventually it was given a genus of its own and called after a Cherokee Indian, Gigantia sequoia. It is limited exclusively to the Sierra Nevada range, as the redwood is to the seacoast range, and both are Californian natives. The Calaveras Grove contains the most celebrated of these monarchs of the forest, and nearly all have received names from numerous hero worshippers. They attain to a height varying from 250 to 300 feet, and to a diameter of from 20 to 30 feet. Their age is assigned to be from two to 3,000 years, and this is judged from the number of their concentric rings. So many of them are partially destroyed by fire, that it has given rise to a theory that a thousand years ago there must have been a terrible fire which raged among the sequoias alone, and this is supported by the fact that sugar pines and other old trees now side by side with these show no signs of fire, proving that they had no existence at the time. On entering the grove, the three leading generals of the Union Army, Grant, Sherman, and McPherson stand facing you, the pride of the forest, the miner's cabin, blown down in a gale in November 1860, and the three graces, a beautiful cluster, are quite near. Others lie all around, each known by its own name. The mother and the twins are succeeded by the father of the forest. The father long since bowed his head in the dust, Yet how stupendous he is, even in his ruin. A hollow chamber, or burnt cavity, extends through the trunk, large enough for a person to ride through, and near its base is a never-failing spring of water. There are Richard Cobden, John Bright, Daniel O'Connell, the Sequoia Queen and her maids of honor, the old maid and the old bachelor, Daniel Webster, George Washington, and very many others, and perhaps what is best of all to see, many other young sequoias 
growing up with promise of the same gigantic proportions that may be middle-aged trees of their kind in about a thousand years. In the South Grove, extending for three miles and a half, there are 1,300 trees, one of them still standing and growing as the interior portion so burned out that there is a room large enough to contain 16 men on horseback at the same time. And yet enough is left of the outer rim to support the colossal proportions above. In this grove, traces of the great fire are most visible, and Noah's Ark and old Goliath, two of the giants, are prone upon the ground. A limb alone of the latter measures twelve feet in circumference, and, standing in the trunk, it is easy to believe you are on the deck of some large ship. Meantime, the base is used as a stable for horses. The Mariposa Grove is about two miles square and is divided into an upper and lower grove. The grizzly giant is its great sequoia, but its upper part is much battered and torn away. Some who have seen these groves concur in a feeling of disappointment about the size of the trees, which is attributable to the two causes of their close proximity and isolation from other trees, there being no others to compare their height with and so few of the trees continue complete to the top, nearly all being broken off or withered. But others are very beautiful, and one who has seen them writes, It is impossible for pen to convey, or tongue to tell, the feeling of shadowy mystery that invites the gazer into the solemn and mighty forests to enter and explore. Little by little the light before begins to pale and dim, and the trunks to grow grander in proportion, the height vaster, until at last one stands in reverence before the silent and ancient monarchs themselves. It is twilight. No breeze whispers through the branches of these forest gods that climb seemingly to the zenith in their search for space and light. All the eloquence that has stirred and electrified the civilized world fails utterly to hold spellbound and attentive the man, as does the mute appeal of these monsters to the truth. I am the Lord thy God. Yosemite is grand, terrific, beautiful, but is stone. These, the trees, live. Their tops, as the ocean breeze wafts through them, sigh a mournful requiem of the ages they have witnessed, of the suffering, the toil, and the little recompense of man. What stories could they tell of nations, peoples, cities, born and decayed on this our continent before Columbus came from the rising sun to people with a new race, a long-lost world? Do they hold the future of our nation, the destiny of our children, in the grasp of their knowledge, and look mute and pityingly down upon a pride, a glory that, like all other prides and glories, Pomps and circumstances, whether of nations or men, shall surely fade. To return to that hot afternoon, during which we went coaching on, leaving the mountains behind us and coming to a dead-level country, which was interesting from its being the scene of some of the earliest of the Californian gold diggings. The ground was of a brilliant reddish color, and in some parts gulched and undermined in all directions. These diggings are deserted now, 
but traces of the gold fever are left in the numerous and scattered population. Men who came out expecting sudden riches, remaining in the bitterness of disappointment to work for daily bread. We had dinner at about five o'clock at Priest's, and then a long moonlight drive afterwards of twenty miles. We descended into a valley to cross the Tulomini River, coach and horses being driven onto the ferry boat, which was worked by a man by means of a rope suspended in mid-air across the river. The heat in this valley was intense, nor was it much better when we got up on the open plain and galloped along with the shadow of the coach rolling round and round after us in the moonlight. Not yet, when we arrived at Chinese camp, our night's resting place. We all spent a sleepless night in our small, barely furnished rooms with insect companionship and were glad when the first streaks of daylight came and we made another early start in the gray dawn this time, for it was 4 a.m. We had 28 miles to drive to catch the 1050 train at Milton. It was pleasant after such a bad night to feel the cool breeze of the early morning and to know the sun had risen behind the hill by the pinky tinge of the sky. When we stopped for breakfast at Sonora, we found a Noah's Ark waiting to receive us in place of our coach, which went no further. It was an ancient vehicle lined with greasy yellow leather with neither door nor window, but curtains that rolled up and down and did duty instead. The way was through a baking piece of prairie, over a road not made with hands, and we suffered very bitterly. It was a crowning misery, for we felt that the expedition had been somewhat of a failure. Vainly we strained our eyes across the dreary waste for miles around, in search of what it seemed hopeless to find, a railway station. We did not breathe. We panted breathlessly. We did not sit. We rolled helplessly, and see quite felt, whilst I almost did, that no Yosemite could be worth such terrible misery. We were near to Milton before we saw it, and found the station, and the train waiting. We were positively ashamed of the dust that we brought into the railway carriage to the other passengers, and certainly were not less so when we arrived at Stockton and drove to the hotel for luncheon and a great deal more so when we came to Oakland Ferry and crossed in the ferry boat, driving to the palace once more. We spent that evening in trying to remove some of the traces of our expedition. The room seemed almost oppressively luxurious to us. The fair, sumptuous, after our late experiences, and bed very like an earthly paradise. Saturday, August 29th. It was a beautiful sunny morning, and I wanted to carry away with me the happier impression of San Francisco, and so determined to go up Telegraph Hill for a bird's eye view. The cable car accomplishes the almost perpendicular ascent in three minutes, and is so steep that you slip down on your next-door neighbor unless you hold on. I had a beautiful view of the town on either side, the broad, muddy-colored bay beneath, with the islands of Alcatraz and Angel, and, beyond all, the Golden Gate, through which we should be passing that afternoon. 
I return to the worry and fuss that seems an inevitable accompaniment to the going on board. I suppose it is partly that there is no fixed time and that you may go at any time in the morning, that there are deck chairs to be thought of and the luggage for the hold and the luggage that is wanted in stateroom to be set specially apart. We had a further cause for anxiety and some washing, which a Chinaman, an unauthorized washerman, it appeared, had walked off with, and which on inquiry was not forthcoming. The bellman had told us he would send the washerman, and we naturally confided it to the first Chinaman who appeared and asked for it. I gave it up for lost, but the policeman stationed in the courtyard of the palace, ready to show strangers through the Chinese quarters, spent the morning there searching for it, and brought it forth at the last minute. I was sorry to be going away from San Francisco without seeing one of the most interesting features of the city, the Chinese quarter. In the length of three streets live all the Chinese who swarm about the city. They inhabit cells burrowed underneath the street, below the level of the drainage, sleeping in bunks placed one above the other. The sights and smells are sickening, but the chief interest of Chinese town lies in its theaters, temples, gambling houses, restaurants, and opium dens. Wherever the Chinese go, with his toiling and long-suffering patience, there is the price of labor immediately cheapened, and so strong is the feeling among the lower classes against them that the state of California has been obliged to pass a law forbidding the immigration of any Chinese laborer. Any Chinaman on landing now has to go before a magistrate and prove that he is a merchant or in possession of property and that he has come solely for the purposes of trading. We drove down to the docks at one o'clock and went on board the Australia at once. It was the closing of the first era in our travels to have thus journeyed over the first of our great continents, to have seen the first of our new worlds, and to have gained the knowledge of a new people with their manners and customs. Though a little marred by the shortness of time, we look back with very great pleasure to our seven weeks spent in America and Canada. We said our farewell to America as we sailed out of the Golden Gate. Regret tempered in leaving her shores by the excitement of going forth on the ocean in search of other lands and other peoples. End of chapter 6, part 2